My name is Neil Thompson. I'm the uh, National Director of OMF International U.S. And uh, before we get started, I'd like to introduce you to my family, my wife, Wani, and uh, our two boys. This picture was taken 12 years ago in Thailand in uh, the side yard uh, behind the hospital compound where I worked at Monterham Christian Hospital. A couple years ago, uh, we had all grown a little bit. I'd like to share with you this morning a story from my life that moved into the life of uh, people that have become very dear to me in central Thailand. I'd like to share with you healing and the middle way, medical mission and a Buddhist worldview. Before we get started, let's uh, commit this session to prayer. Commit it to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for uh, your presence among us. We thank you for all that you've done uh, among the peoples of the world, and especially uh, where people had a very uh, distant and dim view of who you were, who you are, the uh, medical missionaries who went to these uh, parts of the globe, uh, proclaiming your name and the great things that they did and seeing people come to you because of the compassion of Jesus Christ. Uh, we commit this time to you and our reflections on uh, Thailand and uh, your love for the Thai people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Matthew 9.25. Matthew 9.35 to 38. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. It was almost 41 years ago that as a senior medical student, I had an opportunity to go to central Thailand to see what life was like there. Uh, I had gone to Urbana as a college student a few years before and sort of felt God leading me into mission and medicine at about the same time. And so within a week of leaving uh, snowy Philadelphia, I was in the middle of central Thailand shadowing doctors and nurses there. And one of the first places that I was taken was to a clinic, really in the boondocks, uh, central Thailand, surrounded by rice fields. And this was the, uh, the cool season, and a rice crop had just been harvested. As I got there, I met people that I had never seen before. And one of the men uh, that has become very dear to me in my life was uh, Uncle Riap. Uncle Riap was a 30-something-year-old person that I've uh, gotten to know and know a little bit of his history. He was a boat skipper on the river uh, going north-south into the Gulf of Thailand. And um, he was kind of a wild guy, uh, liked by his friends, but he had kind of a, a lifestyle that a lot of Thai men seem to enjoy, womenizing and gambling and not being very responsible and be, being very carefree. He had already been looked down upon a little bit by his family when in the midst of all of his other problems, he began to notice a numb patch on his back. Didn't bother him much because he couldn't feel it. But then uh, he began to experience some pain in one of his arms. And sometimes it would be almost uncontrollable. And he'd find some medicine for the pain, and he took it, and it would alleviate the pain. But then he began to see something happening. 
and he began to notice that his hand began to claw. And then the tips of his fingers uh, were beginning to disappear, and he had no idea what was going on. As life progressed and he went to the temple, there were sympathetic uh, Buddhist monks there, but they didn't know what to do. The village shaman, the witch doctor, they put some medicines on it, and they didn't know what to do. And his family was sort of shocked, and they didn't know what to do with him. And by the time that uh, they knew more about it, he already began to have some problems with his foot. He couldn't walk quite normally because his foot was dragging. And they had some ulcers on the bottom of his feet. And the ulcers became a little smelly. And so they sort of kicked him out of the house and built a little shack at the back of their property in central Thailand. I want to stop here in the life of Uncle Riap. We'll come back to him for the rest of the story, but I want to give us some background into uh, the world in which Uncle Riap grew up, the country of Thailand, the Buddhist worldview, and what that means uh, to them, and what we should understand before we try to venture into another worldview, a third worldview, uh, which is not ours. This trip to Thailand for me was really an exciting adventure. And God used it to help me to understand what his will for my life was. And eventually I went back to Monterey Christian Hospital to, to work there. Came to like the people, the customs, the dancing, the beauty of the country, uh, the fruit, the music. It was all sort of ingrained in me. And I said, this is what I want to do with my life. But this story isn't about me. This is about Uncle Rhea. And we'll focus on the situation that he grew up in. I'd like to introduce you to Thailand and Buddhism. Now, what I'm going to present is not in-depth Buddhist faith. What I put on here is from Wikipedia, and you can look it up yourself. It's very easy. We're doing the superficial overview of not so much their in-depth belief, but what it means in their daily lives. Probably the most important aspect of Buddhist belief is uh, what the Thai call gum or karma. Rebirth, reincarnation taken from the Hindu faith and Buddhism was really um, um, a reformation from the, Buddhist, from the Hindu faith in about the 5th to 6th century BC. Why is there suffering and what is a response to suffering? What is the Christian's response to suffering? How did Christ respond? And what's the response in central Thailand? Well, we'll look at the at karma from the Sanskrit action or work. In Buddhism, it's the force that drives the cycle of suffering and rebirth for each being. We call this making merit. And as we go along, you'll see pictures of people making merit, bowing down to their concept of God or a spirit world that's beyond them. In Theravada Buddhism, there can be no divine salvation or forgiveness for one's karma since it is a purely impersonal process and part of the makeup of the universe. We look at the Four Noble Truths, the, the Eightfold Pathway, and then the, the Middle Way, the background of all Buddhist believers. Life leads to suffering. We know that. Many of us have, ha have had our own experiences. Suffering is caused by desire, by craving. How do you cure that in a, Buddhist, in a Buddhist mindset? How do you deal with that? 
you extinguish that desire, you withdraw from it, and you follow the Eightfold Path. It could be correct or it could be the right. And we're talking about their concept of wisdom, of ethics, and of discipline. The correct view, the correct intention, correct speech, correct action, correct livelihood, correct effort, correct mindfulness, correct concentration. Some have said that Buddhism is the um, most highest developed philosophy on how to live life, on how to live the good life. And so the end of the Eightfold Path is the middle way. What does the middle way mean? Well, you're not too Republican, you're not too Democrat, you're right down the middle. You don't go to extremes. You balance everything out, and that's your life. The middle ground between all things exist, all things don't exist. And avoid the extremes of permanence and nihilism, existence and nothingness. And these are the things that the Buddha began to teach his disciples around the 5th or 6th century B.C. I studied Buddhism before I went to Thailand. Um, I was confused, though, when I made some friends in Thailand who were professional people who had been Buddhist, who had been Chinese ancestor worshippers, and who grew up with an idol shelf in their homes. And I said, tell me about Buddhism. What does it mean to you? And uh, there isn't one person that I could, that I can remember who could explain Buddhism to me. They could tell me what they did in terms of ritual at the temple. They couldn't tell me what they believed. Now, there's only one person in this room that I know grew up Buddhist. There may have been others. One of them is my wife, who's come in since we got started. You want to stand up? There she is. So, My Exhibit A uh, grew up. <laughs> Uh, middle class, uh, Chinese, Thai merchant in Bangkok, uh, Buddhist ancestor-worshipping family. And if you want to hear one story of how she came to know the Lord, chat with her. Uh, she's, she's, she's got a great story. But in Thailand, we're talking about syncretism. We're talking about the Thai people who want to bring anything that has power, that seems to have meaning. And so many Thai, when they first hear the gospel, they said, that's great. We'll put a picture of Jesus up on the idol shelf and make him one of the many that can provide a way out for us and perhaps help us at some time. And what we all, anyone who has lived in Thailand, uh, has come to know that to be Thai is to be Buddhist. And to change from being Buddhist is to be seen as being disloyal to your family and or community, to your country, to the king, and to your religion. Buddhism. And so there's a tremendous amount of uh, pressure to conform to how you've grown up and what you've learned. Anybody who's older than us and maybe some of us who are a little younger, we might call uncle. So Lung Riep is Uncle Riep. And this was the uncle who uh, worked the rice paddy behind our house where in the area where I lived for over 20 years. And uh, friends of mine and I had chances to share with him on many occasions about the Lord. And we'd say, Lung, if you had the opportunity to know that there was a God who has a heaven where you could go and be with him for eternity, would you choose to follow that God or would you choose to follow what you've grown up with? 
Well, his answer and the answer of 94% of Thai people is we're going to follow what we've, what we've learned when we grew up. It's very, very hard to make a change in this kind of setting. I've been to several Thai funerals. It's a very depressing experience. If you've been to a Thai funeral, a Chinese funeral, everybody's dressed in black. Hopelessness seems to be the theme rather than hope. A Thai funeral, the uh, four um, signposts that are being held up say he's gone and he won't be back. He sleeps and he won't wake up. There is no resurrection. There is no escape. This is the the background, the worldview, the context, the culture of our Uncle Riep. About two centuries ago, just a little bit after that, missionaries who were going to East Asia, in particular, India, China, Burma, were beginning to think, many of these people aren't really interested in what we're teaching them. Some were very interested. Some were not very interested at all. And um, in the midst of all that and missionaries going out, if you've read the stories of William Carey or Adoniram Judson, you know that life was tough. Many of their children died and some of their wives died in childbirth. And so the mission agencies in those days were thinking, we need to send doctors out to help our own people. And then somewhere along the line of Carl Gutzlaff and Robert Morrison, somebody got the idea, well, maybe we can reach out to the local people and provide medical care for them. And um, Peter Parker in China, Dan Beach Bradley in uh, Thailand were some of the early missionary Uh, medical missionary pioneers in the uh, 1830s. And they went out as pastors and doctors for the first time in history to show people the compassion of Jesus Christ that would complement the preaching of the gospel, that there is a God who created the world. There is a God who loves you. There is a God who sent his son, who died, who experienced all this for you. And Peter Parker in China People have said that the surgery he did was the scalpel that opened the hearts of the, of the Chinese people. And in Thailand, we have Dan Beach Bradley growing up in New York State, marrying, and when he's in his early 30s, leaving for Thailand. And these are some of the things that this one man was able to do during his stay in Thailand. Vaccinations. He actually imported a cow from the United States in the 1840s to make the vaccination for smallpox um, and probably save the lives of 10 to 20,000 Thai people in the process. Establishment of uh, schools, taught natural science, hospitals and dispensaries, care for leprosy patients. Um, Actually, what, what I copied this from said leper colonies, but we don't call lepers lepers anymore just like we don't call our patients who've had a cholecystectomy a gallbladder. So we refer to them as leprosy patients or someone who's developed Hansen's disease. So I took the liberty to edit that a little bit. Urged prison reform, educated women, unheard of in East Asia in the early 19th century. Care for the insane, medical procedures, an incredible man. First surgical procedure, first dental procedure, first blood transfusion. 
and the first printing press and newspaper. Actually, when he was on the boat trip from the east coast of the United States to Thailand, he stopped by Burma, visited with Adoniram Judson. And uh, Judson was getting rid of his printing press at that time. Uh, Dan Beach Bradley took it to Bangkok and proceeded to publish the first newspaper in Thai history. He was an evangelist, doctor, printer, writer, government advisor, and the unofficial American ambassador from the United States to Thailand. He was also the royal physician, friend, and advisor to King Mongkut, or referred to as Rama IV. And so great was his influence in the middle of the 19th century that this was called the Bradley era of Thai history, second only to the king himself. Quite an amazing man. He felt kind of depressed about his 40 years because he couldn't point to one Thai person who had become a Christian. We don't know. Maybe, maybe there were. But this man, single-handedly, and then with the people who followed him, the, the tradition that he passed on, were able to establish these things in, um, in the society of Thailand in terms of all the, the firsts of his, of his life. How many years was he there? Uh, 30 to 40 years. From, 19, from 1835 to into the 1870s. Yeah, thank you. I'm going to get you a little bit closer to the history of Uncle Riep before we get back to him. Uh, the two doctors, Chris and Catherine Maddox, were China Inland missionaries in Sichuan province in China. And then, as you know, there was the uh, communist takeover, and then uh, all foreigners were expelled from China. And so these two were quite young at the time. They were in their 30s, early 40s. And they decided that uh, they wanted to be open for how CIM missionaries were redeployed along the East Coast to the Chinese populations of Southeast Asia. And so they were asked to survey Central Thailand for possible medical needs. And uh, they were the ones responsible for setting up the early medical clinics and leprosy clinics, which eventually became uh, Monorum Christian Hospital where uh, I worked uh, about 10 years after they left. Uh, Chris Maddox went on to work in Laos uh, to provide all kinds of medical care there, and he was eventually awarded by the government of the UK, the OBE, Order of the British Empire, uh, an, absolutely, an absolutely incredible man. And it was this man who started Modern Christian Hospital the source of the clinics, the source of the um, leprosy clinic, where I met Uncle Ria about 41 years ago. Some questions have come into my mind um, when I first presented this many, many years ago. I was thinking, this is wonderful. We have this history of the contribution of medical mission and how it has complemented uh, the evangelization of uh, the peoples in many parts of the world. Uh, Andrew Walls, in one of the things that he wrote, called Medical Mission, the heavy artillery of evangelism around the world. But why? Why would Peter Parker need to introduce scientific medicine to China? And why would the first introduction of scientific medicine in Thailand in the same decade of the 19th century be the first time that they had th thought or approached a scientific way of looking at uh, people's diseases and their body. Why? Why didn't the government hospitals in Uncle Reup's day have the medical treatment for leprosy? Or weren't they interested? 
What was in the background? What was behind all that? Why was Uncle Rhea forced to live out of his house and in a shack in the back of the family's property? All of these questions have come to my mind, and um, like many of you, I've attended the lecture sessions by John Patrick uh, at this conference and others, and he has helped to challenge me to look into some of the background for this. And uh, I have read some books over the last year and done research into the whys, the answers to the whys. I point you to Rodney Stark, The Rise of Christianity. Uh, how did a marginal band of Christians in the third decade after the new millennium become the majority religious, the majority religion in the Roman Empire in a mere 350 years? How did those few Christians multiply over that time? People have said mass conversions, incredible miracles, and Rodney Stark, through his sociology metrics and his measuring and connecting it with the papers that have been written over the decades and the last two centuries, have, has shown that the growth was probably very slow, very continuous, 10% per decade, and the reasons why Christianity grew during that time are documented in the chapters of his book, The Rise of Christianity, Epidemics. Christians stayed in town, provided water and food for people who had contracted the plague. There were great epidemics in the Roman Empire in 165 AD and 250 AD, and between a quarter and a third of the Roman populations were wiped out at that time. What about the leaders of the communities, the, uh, the governors, the mayors, the pagan philosophers, the priests? They left the city. They went to the countryside. The Christians stayed in, in town and didn't only minister to their own families. They took care of their neighbors, and people were paying attention. There's a chapter on women, how Christians treated their women. And you realize that what Jesus taught about women, what Paul taught about women and the respect for women, respect for children, totally revolutionary two centuries, uh, two millennia ago. And these things are documented. Chapter on martyrs, it's fascinating. In another book that I, of his that I've read over the last year, The Victory of Reason, why was it that over the period of time that we call the Middle Ages or the Dark Ages, and the Dark Ages should probably be called the Bright Ages, because there were many innovations by people who had been liberated from the oppressive rule of the Roman Empire and were able to innovate in terms of farming and fishing and how they used horses and how they understood how to plant their fields. Uh, harness power from water, harness power from the air, these things had never been done before. It was because they believed in a God who created the universe and in the reason and the orderliness that was behind that. The West developed chemistry. Pagan religions developed alchemy. Western scientific progress developed astronomy. The East and the pagan philosophers developed the zodiac and astrology. The basis, the background, is totally different. And that brings us back to Uncle Rhea and the rest of the story. I'd like you to think about that. Think in your mind. Um, 
I was at Andrew's talk uh, last hour, and someone asked the question, when we're put on the defensive about what, might we, what we might be doing wrong in medical missions, um, I was thinking, well, first of all, we, we can be on the offensive, not be offensive, on the offense. Because if we know what Christians have done since the catacombs in terms of reaching out to a needy society, uh, we, might, we might help some of these people to understand that in the difficult circumstances in our own society and the way we as Christians are on the, on the defensive, that we can show that what medical missionaries are doing in the last two centuries is just a continuum of what the church has been doing for 2,000 years. It's fascinating. I was in language school in, uh, in Thailand in 1978-79, and I found out about the Royal Thai College of Surgeons, and I went to the first meeting that I could attend. And what struck me is what I've already shared about Dan Beach Bradley. As I walked into the first meeting, there were some booths, and I usually sort of glide right by them, but one of them caught my eye because it was the history of medicine in Thailand. And I looked at the firsts that I told you about, Dan Beach Bradley, First surgical procedure, first anesthesia, first dental procedure, first blood transfusion. And I thought, wow. I had heard it all, but I hadn't seen it quite that way. And I was amazed. I felt like I was walking on holy ground. Um, this, is, this is because of our belief in a God who created us, loves us, and, and created the, or, the orderliness. This was a special article in the Thai Journal of Surgery by one of the uh, neurosurgeons. This was written in 1999. And, of course, he starts off with Dan Beach Bradley. Talked to um, a young man, got in touch with me about 10 years ago. He was writing a master's thesis on leprosy in Thailand. And uh, through his research, he found out that independently in the beginning and then coordinating care later on, Olmeth International, Presbyterian Missions, and the Southern Baptists had helped to basically eradicate leprosy in Thailand. And it was through the establishing of leprosy clinics where I first met Uncle Rio, and through the establishing of, um, of inpatient care, understanding the nature of drug reaction and how you can treat drug reaction and back off and balance in the different kinds of leprosy, lepromatous in the skin and the neurological uh, aspects of leprosy. Well, this is my hero for the day, Uncle Rhea. After that really difficult day in the leprosy clinic, when he didn't, he wasn't really interested in Christianity, and he only went there because a relative said, hey, there's this clinic, and people go and they get medicine, why don't you go see what can be done? Nurses, Eileen, Kay, some others took care of him. Saw some of his deformities, said, we have some surgical procedures that can help correct your claw hand. We might be able to help your feet. Why don't you come in? He didn't like the message of Jesus. He couldn't get past the fellowship that other fellow sufferers like him were having and how many of them had come to know the Lord. And as God was working on the inside of Uncle Reup's heart, he was also working on his mind. And then he was reminded that, oh, you know, I used to be interested in music, and he could sing. And in the midst of Christian community, he found out that he had a gift of music. And since 
that day when he became a Christian, he's composed and fostered the composition of dozens, probably hundreds, of uh, Thai, indigenous Thai Christian worship music. A man, alone, hopeless, and yet given hope because of who Jesus Christ is and what he's done for us as we fellowship together. Some of the friends he made. So he's my candidate for Thai rock star of the, of the century for last year. Uncle Riep died a couple of, uh, about four or five years ago, passed away in his mid-80s. Mid, uh, and toward the end, when he couldn't speak, when, when he, could, he had stumps for fingers, he had no thumb, but he could still put the drumstick-like uh, things on his wrists, and he could still play the um, kim, what's the kim? Like a xylophone. Yeah, thank you. Uh, he could still play the xylophone. Fascinating. The green book, the red book, they're used in many churches throughout Thailand. A deformed man blessing the whole country, Christian country. Well, some of the other, um, wrap this up in maybe five, ten minutes. I'd like to leave uh, some time for questions, observations, and uh, what this might mean to you. Contributions of medical mission, as it's been chronicled in journals, uh, articles. Introduction of scientific medicine. We mentioned that about Dr. Dan Beach Bradley. Medical education and systems. Um, healthcare systems. Treatment of specific diseases, like leprosy. Transfer of values and the relief of the suffering of millions. What do I mean by transfer of values? This is an article by Christopher Gunman about uh, 20 years ago, 1991. Uh, when I first saw this, it rang, it rang true to my life and my experience. You know, when you start a new school in a, in, among a people group or a country where Christ hasn't been known, you introduce a whole new system of values. When you introduce a new hospital or a clinic, you're saying people are important. You're, you're teaching about the sanctity of life, but you're showing it. Nurses, uh, nurse aides in the beginning of the history of our hospital, they would fake pulses and fake blood pressure just to write something down. And we said, people are important. This could be a sign of something going wrong. This, isn't, this is who we are. You can't fake it. And so we're introducing a whole set, a whole set of concepts of what we're all about as people. We take care of the outcast. We take care of leprosy patients. We take care of the poor. And all of these things are meant to um, transfer values from one country to another, from one people group to another, but most significantly from Jesus Christ, from Scripture into a new, in, into a new people. At the hospital, we have evangelistic follow-up, baptisms, and we want to see churches planted, and then we want to see planted churches, planting new churches. And as I was describing Uncle Rhea, he would come from the country or rural or farming community. And uh, he was a patient. We reached out to them. But who else did the hospital, did the clinic ministry influence? We had domestic staff to be house helpers for the missionaries. And they were one of the early ones to become Christians because they saw the Christian life over time close up. They saw the downtimes, they saw the uptimes, and they said, this is something we want. 
we said we want to develop our staff. The, the Buddhist people who worked there said, why develop your staff? You make them smarter, they'll move somewhere else. He said, we develop our people because we're Christians. This is the value that we're instilling. We want to help people reach their full potential. Friendship evangelism, evangelism of employees. We focus on patience. Later on, we thought these the employees are with us all the time. And probably more than 50% of our employees in time came to know the Lord, came to know Jesus as Savior and Lord. And then our operating room team. The 20 years that I was there, we saw half to two-thirds of the team come to know Christ. In the 1980s, one lady uh, in the operating room liked to argue with me. Christianity doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense that there's a God. And we went back and forth, and we let it ride. Seven years later, over that seven period of time, she was watching the lives of her Christian friends. And she was baptized in 1997. And when Wani and our family went back to Thailand last year, she was leading the worship service. We used to argue together 20, 25 years ago. It's amazing how God works in people's lives, but it does take time. Our operating room team. We also had Thai Christian professionals join us in the work at the hospital. Nurses, doctors, pharmacists, laboratory technicians. Um, They had been led to the Lord in many different ways over many different kinds of years. But we worked together for God's kingdom. My hero is Uncle Rhea because from being an outcast with leprosy, he had the courage to go to the hospital to find something new, um, to continue to fellowship with uh, fellow sufferers of leprosy. And then he used a gift and he blessed the country. Peoples who have been resistant to the gospel have really responded to the message of medical mission over the last uh, 180 to 200 years. The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. How's God speaking to your life? Today is a different day. It's a generation later from when I first went. There's still many opportunities in the world. And um, God can use you if you go. You don't have an out if you stay. God can use you if you stay. Uh, we look very, we look forward to uh, many of you joining the uh, harvest fields in, in East Asia. Thank you very much. <laughs> Questions? How yes, sir. It was started by Hudson Taylor as China Inland Mission in 1865. So we're about 145 years old now. Yeah. Are you familiar with American Yes. Uh, We worked with leprosy mission personnel from Australia. Grace Warren was a doctor who came and worked at our hospital. Grace Warren. Amazing Grace. You know Amazing Grace. Wow. Fantastic. Yeah. Yes, sir. Thank you. Uh, the question was how, um, you know, uh, what a Thai person's understanding or a Buddhist's understanding of disease might be and how we might interact with that. My understanding of Buddhist and, uh, uh, Buddhism and Buddhist people is that when they, see, when they see disease, they think you must have done something wrong in the past. 
and there's something inherently bad about you. And that's the, that's the, the vice that karma has on people in Thailand. They're locked into a, a rebirth, reincarnation, and there's no... When Uncle Riep and people like him developed leprosy, they were looked down on because they must have done something wrong before and there was no escape from that. And so they would turn their back on people with problems, with disabilities. Very little disability care in the third world until Christians move in and introduce it. And so we say, um, we have a God who made us, who loves us. We can't explain why people suffer, except that life is difficult. But we know that, uh, that God sent his son Jesus to suffer for us. He knows suffering, understands suffering, and we can give meaning to suffering. And that's another lesson from Uncle Reup's life, which I didn't mention, thank you, um, that he redeemed suffering. He redeemed his leprosy and his deformity into some way that he could contribute to the Christian church and uh, contribute to Thai society. Is that helpful? Uh, yeah, uh, thank you. Yes, uh, Daniel. If, uh, you, you said that being Thai, being, being Buddhist, and seems like it's almost for a lot of people a, a culture rather than a belief system at times. Is it possible to be a Buddhist Christian? Can you can you maintain some cultural semblance of being Buddhist and be a Christian? The question, uh, Dr. Daniel Tolan, that's a tough one. Yeah. <laughs> is it possible for someone who is Buddhist, who has become a Christian, to continue to remain a Buddhist and, and, and to practice both, basically? Um, I don't think so. Most of the Buddhists that I've known who have become Christians are, are really want to leave the past. Your question is very relevant to Muslim background believers who want to maintain their culture in Islam. Uh, what we're trying to teach, you see, there's a lot of opposition to every Thai Buddhist who's become a Christian. There's a tremendous amount of opposition saying, you're, you're not loyal to your mom and dad. You're supposed to be taking care of them. You're supposed to be doing this, that, and the other. And one of our jobs as Christians in that uh, background is to teach the new Christians, how can you honor your parents more than a Buddhist person would honor their mother and father. Because they're just saying, well, you can't do the, uh, the rites at the temple. You, you can't, why um, prat? You can't uh, go and you can pay respect to the priests, but you don't go down on the floor and uh, show them respect like you would God. You can't do that. So uh, I haven't heard that question before, and I don't know that many Buddhists would like to stay in their old Buddhism. We're trying to help them. How do you... How do you help Thai people explain the fact that they are Thai and Christians and loyal to the king, country, community, and family all at the same time? And that's a process that's going on right, right, right now. Can, can you compare that to, you said it was a more relevant question to the, the Muslim. Yeah, could I expound on the Muslim? Uh, there are uh, is it Engel who has described a C1 through 5 um, spectrum of how Muslims, after they become Christians, continue to relate to the Islamic faith or not? And at one extreme, 5 or 7, 
they they leave it completely. They they turn their backs on their background and they want to identify only with Christians, kind of like the Buddhists. On the other side, there are many who become Christians, but they want to continue to identify with their families, with their old friends, sort of be, um, maintain the bridges that they had in their old relationships. Um, and different mission organizations come down on, well, you can't go all the way to one side. No, you can't be a Christian and do all of the, um, all of the rituals and whatever that you might have inside the temple. So it's a very lively debate among missiologists now as to how far you can go. And many teams have different ways of approaching Muslims based, based on this. A little out of our context today, but totally re relevant to reaching the peoples of the world. Yeah, thank you very much. Yes, ma'am. We live in Nashville, Tennessee, and we have a large influx of persons from refugee camps on the Thai-Burma border. Wow. And many of these uh, are very strong Christians because years and years ago, the Presbyterians went into some of those areas and planted some very good seed. And they have, many of them have found their way to Nashville. Uh, our government has agreed to take a large number of them, as has Canada, Norway, uh, Denmark, Belgium, and France, and Australia. And we've, we've got a heavy share into this country. When they come to this country, they are whatever their background was when they arrived. We have Pentecostals. We have Baptists. We have uh, Buddhists. We have Presbyterians. And now they're Methodist because they found a little niche in Nashville at our church. They meet in the chapel. But what's been interesting to me, the woman who is their pastor is from Thailand, and her husband was a Buddhist, and while his family was building Buddhist temples, her family was building Presbyterian churches when they were growing up. And they were married 30 years before he was a Christian, but that's another story. But anyway, on Sunday mornings, we have these worship services, and a couple hundred adults and about 150 of their children are firmly entrenched at our Methodist church. And that's been interesting because the Methodists who were there don't know what to do with them. They speak about 30 different languages and dialects, and that lends for a rather confusing worship service. Uh, <laughs> she used to preach in English and had it translated into two other languages, but now she preaches in Northern Thai and still translated into two other languages. They sing their hymns simultaneously. They have a repertoire of about 100 hymns sung in four languages, their own words, same tune. But anyway, uh, what's interesting to me are the Buddhists that have come. She is not out there twisting arms and trying to convert them to Christianity. But they come to her and say, after many months of being here, they'll say, we see how your Christians love and care for each other. Could we be Christian and would you baptize us? And that's wow. a glorious day when, you know, when this yeah. happens. We have lots of them. And they clap and they say, Hallelujah. <laughs> Mrs. Fields. Yes. Thank you. I saw Jim Fields. Uh, comments on comments on peoples from East Asia coming into Nashville. Uh, Karen, Kachin, Thai, Northern Thai, many peoples. Uh, you're the fifth or sixth person I've talked to within the last six days who has worked with Karen, Karen refugees, children of Karen refugees in uh, the Burma to Thailand side of things. Some of the background is that probably 50% of the Karen people group are Christians. Over 50% of the Kachin are Christians. And many of them have been persecuted and driven out of Burma and end up in Thailand. And there are many agencies helping them to resettle. Um, Mrs. Fields lives in Nashville. We've just heard of, uh, of these Southeast Asian people groups being resettled in South Jersey and different parts of Pennsylvania and Michigan. So this is not an uncommon 
setting and that, and that they, those uh, people would become Christians in the states is wonderful. And that's a way in which you can reach people groups uh, without leaving a border because you're concerned about the peoples in your midst. They arrive here with nothing but the clothes on their backs. Yeah. And people from the community and the churches and so forth try to help them get comfortably settled as soon as they can, have to find them jobs, they don't speak English. Uh, if you're a rice farmer or someone who's lived in the jungle hiding for 10 years, you don't have a marketable skill in Nashville. And yeah. so it takes some real hustling, but they're doing extremely well, and we just love them. Thank you very much. Thank you. That's a wonderful comment. Yes? I was just curious. Um, with, is there an effect on, like, do they like balance a lot in that culture? Because they, they have the Chinese influence coming down from the north, and they came out of Hinduism. I'm just wondering if that's in the culture. Uh, the question is whether that uh, Thai Buddhists like balance in their life. I think that's probably the meaning of the middle way. You don't yeah. want to be too extreme in either direction, and you don't want to offend anybody on the on the right side politically or spiritually, and not on the left side. And so you sort of um, wind your way uh, through life like that, not taking strong positions on anything. Probably. And does that affect their health views at all? Does that affect their health views? Um, hmm. No. No, thank you. Mm-hmm. Yes, sir. You made the point that Buddhists have that, that, philosophy, that polytheistic type of philosophy, you know, that, that any power that they can put on the table is a good thing. Have you found any particular approach to them that has been most effective in them receiving Christ as the The question is um, understanding the Thai Buddhists are also syncretistic and uh, they're animistic and they look to the gods and ancestors. Um, uh, does showing them Jesus as the mediator to God the Father make any difference? Um, in the rural countryside with farmers, uh, probably not. Um, they're the ones I tried to show in the, in the talk. They may see Christ through your life over a long period of time. And one of our best Thai friends who was a Christian and a doctor said, most Thai people will take seven to eight years to really become Christians and to begin to grow because they need to see it. For the more intellectual, the, the, the doctors, the professional people in Thailand, I think they could probably relate a little bit better to the, um, to the logical side of uh, there being a creator God and there's order in the universe and he sent his son. We're sinful. He's died for our sins um, one of the most successful surgeons and uh, missionary surgeons that I knew went to Chiang Mai in 1968. And I don't know if he did more than a couple dozen operations, but he started a Bible study group. And uh, many of those students from Chiang Mai U- University Hospital became Christians, and they went out and served the Lord. Um, so they were, they, they were students who were open to hearing about the gospel. Yes, my dear. Yes. Just 
Thank you, my dear, my wife, my helpmeet. She brought all these points in my talk that I forgot. Now it's complete. Thank you very much. Yes, please. Thank you. Any suggestions? The, the question is: Any suggestions that Wani and I might have to help Thai um, Thai students in the states who are Buddhist? Uh, how you know how we could make in when, when they go back to to Thailand? We told them that when they become Christians, they most likely won't be gambling, so th- they won't be doing the negative things that many of the guys and girls would be doing. And so they would be saving money. They wouldn't be wasting money. They wouldn't be womanizing. They wouldn't be doing the negative things. But at the same time, uh, they would probably would be trying to respect them more by how they spoke to them, what they said, how they behaved. Um, they would honor them through their achievements in, um, in, in what they did. Um, they're the things that come to mind right now. Um, yes? You want? Oh, uh, just a second. Uh, the one thing that – there's a book that you need to know about if you're working with Asians in the States or Asian Americans – how to honor, how to uh, follow Jesus without dishonoring my parents. And that has, uh, that's from a multi-background, Korean-American, Japanese-American, Chinese-American, um, many opinions on how Asian-Americans can uh, work with their parents and honor them at the same time that they're doing something that they might not approve of. Where is that book available? Uh, I would check Amazon. It's, it's, well, it's, it's well known. How to follow Jesus without... Dishonoring Your Parents by Jeanette Epp, I think, E-P or E-P-P. Your parents or my parents? Your parents. Your parents, yeah. Yes, ma'am. Last question. Yes, we know that in Thailand, especially in Bangkok, there's a lot of districts there with human trafficking and sex I don't know that they try to justify it, and I don't know that they really deal with it. This is this is distinctly a Christian issue because we see it's wrong. I mean, in, in a lot of Asia, the the uh, blind eye, you know, uh, we're shocked that families would want to sell their girls to make some money, and yet we know that that goes on. Um, so this is this is where we need Christians to um, to bring light into very dark places in the world. Thank you. Thank you very much.